Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, we start to uncover some answers to a question that I very first asked when I started working with ultramarathon runners in the early 2000s and that I've wanted to find answers to ever since. And that is what physiological traits matter the most in trail and ultra marathon performance. The reason that this question is so incredibly important is because as coaches and you guys out there in the audience as athletes, you guys can push and pull on any type of physiology that you want to. You have an unlimited number of arrows in your training quiver. You can choose to focus on VO2 max, you can choose to focus on aerobic base building and a whole host of activities. However, some of those physiological aspects that you choose to develop are going to inevitably matter more or less when it comes to ultra marathon performance. If we take the classic construction of marathon performance, there are three key variables that matter. That's one's VO2 max, the fraction that that somebody can sustain, the fraction of that VO2 max that somebody can sustain, and their cost of running, otherwise known as running economy. And you can push and pull with training intervention with training interventions on these variables in order to maximize marathon performance. However, at the ultra marathon distance, I have contended for a long period of time that those three variables may not be as tightly correlated with performance as they are at the marathon distance. So enter Frederick Saboteur Pasteur, who just published a article in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance titled Performance Determinants in Trail Running Races of Different Distances, where he started to unpack this incredibly important question of what physiological parameters actually matter at different ultra marathon distances. And he did it in quite a novel way in one that I really appreciate from a research setup. I have wanted to have conversations like this for a very, very, very long time. And unfortunately so, it's kind of left me making a lot of educated guesses. Research like this, turn those educated guesses into better educated guesses. And ultimately it ends up serving the athlete the best because we can focus on training interventions that matter more at the ultramarathon distance. And we can forego training interventions that might not matter as much. So with that as a little bit of a backdrop, I'm gonna get right out of the way. Here's my conversation all about what physiology matters and what physiology might not matter at the ultramarathon distance. Do you have a heart out? Do you have a time you have to leave by? No, no, absolutely okay. not. Like okay. I have dinner at eight here, so in three hours. Yeah, so. don't 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 say that, man, because then we go down some yeah. rabbit hole. I've had some epic ones <laughs> with people, so yeah. <laughs> I have no time limit either. So that's no, good. no, like, but for me, like, yeah, absolutely. We're Spanish, we're not to be late to places. <laughs> So. <laughs> all right permission for the podcast to go for three hours yeah. then all right that's a good lead-in man we'll see how we'll see what time frame we hit uh we hit here um so th- thanks for joining me i really appreciate it um i have to tell you right out of the gate man when you're when i started seeing some of this research pop up in this area you know i've been i've been coaching for a long time and it was one of those things where i said F- like finally 
like finally we can start to wrestle around with this concept in trail and ultra running that will lead us to an answer that says these are the physiological things that matter and these are the physiological things that 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 don't and to kind of like set that up just a little bit before we get into your background um one of the very first things that I started doing when I started working with ultra marathons, ultra marathoners in the early two thousands was look for stuff like this, because as you're aware of, we, we had a plethora of research in, in cycling and in marathon running and also in triathlon that could kind of like peel apart those physiological determinants of performance, but it really never extended beyond, you know, Ironman actually was the best analog that I could, you know, that, that I could kind of use. And it's always been really impactful from a coaching perspective because you can choose to push and pull on any number of things, right? You have an unlimited number of resources at your fingertips to put athletes through and what you do ultimately makes an impact on their physiology, but you're kind of guessing on this matters more than this. And I want to do this, you know, disproportionately compared to this thing. And I need to focus on, you know, aerobic base or speed or neuromuscular control or kind of whatever, and sometimes these physiological determinants can kind of serve, serve as guideposts for how the overall like macro periodization works. So, but there's none of that in ultra marathon. So it's kind of like guessing, right? Which, you know, I think if, if, if all the coaches were to kind of like be honest with themselves, that's what they do a lot when they're thinking about how to plan their workouts. It's a lot of educated guessing. And sometimes you can put a lot of horsepower behind that educated guess if it's there. And then oftentimes when it's not there, you're kind of just using your own like instincts. And and part of that instinctual process is, is looking at and theorizing what the demands of the event are, and then trying to come up with training interventions that will ready the athlete for those, uh, for those demands. So when your piece of research came out, I was like, God, I wish I had this like 20 years ago when I first started coaching, it would add just a little bit of clarity. I know we've got a long way to go. But uh, just a little bit of clarity to that initial process. So thank you. 20 years later, if you were born 20 years early, earlier, you could help my career out a lot more. <laughs> but um, before before we get into it too much, uh, like let's uh, let, let's make yourself familiar to the audience here. Why don't you tell, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what you do, and then the lab uh, that you work in as well. So first of all, I am Frederic uh, Sabater Pastor. Those are Spanish, uh, like Frederick in Valencian, actually, and then my two last names. So, um, yeah, I am a Spanish researcher right now working in the University Jean Monnet in, in Saint-Étienne, France, under the supervision of Professor Guillaume Millet, who, who has been a past uh, guest of this podcast, right? Yep. And, yeah, so after doing my undergrad in... In Spain, the University of Valencia, I went to Calgary to do my master's in kinesiology, which was supposed to be mostly applied physiology. So I learned a lot about like that applied physiology and how to apply the science to training. And then after that, wanting to come back to Europe, um, my supervisor, Guillaume Yet, uh, he was coming back from the University of Calgary to Europe and he invited me to come here and do a PhD with him. So... Uh, that's a little bit of like my background story as how I got here. And now I finished my PhD, but I'm still working as a postdoctoral researcher in the lab. And 
my the main focus of the lab i would say is fatigue and some people were more work more on fatigue in like let's say clinical populations different like disease like there has been work done on like fatigue and cancer fatigue and multiple sclerosis so that multiple disease and then there's another side that is like either like the pure science of fatigue the basic science of fatigue so what is really happening in the physiology inside the muscle without any application and it's a little bit that way how i think because of that and the experience of guillaume as an ultramarathon runner that they realize well ultramarathon is a perfect model for fatigue because you get people really fatigued <laughs> so so my part like i work on fatigue as well but not as much in like the neuromuscular aspect of fatigue but more like i would say integrative like the title of my thesis was performance and fatigue in in running and i focus mostly on trail running and ultramarathon running so yeah my main focus has been that what are the performance factors uh, for especially running i'm interested in all endurance sports but especially running and then uh, how do those change after fatigue after fatigue and exercise that is endurance exercise so what, what i want to know right out of the gate so your supervisor was Guy, who's been on this podcast before he also made some contributions to uh, uh to, to my audio book his his model and i'm emphasizing the word model intentionally here his theoretical model i should i should actually use that word intentionally as well his theoretical model of the performance determinants in ultra marathon running when it came out that was one of the first blueprints that we actually had but it was really him just kind of using like theory and a little bit of science of what he knew about fatigue and things like that and it became this really complex model but the thing that struck that struck me about it was just in fact that complexity where we're used to and we'll talk about this during the kind of meet of the podcast we're used to a very simplistic model in more of a road running or a marathon type of fashion but i wanted but what what i really want to know is more of a, from a cheeky perspective is is since he was your supervisor and came up with this theoretical model how much did he start pushing you down this road of actually doing like the science behind it because you know theoretical models are only kind of as good as the as the as the as the research will ultimately prove them to be true or false and so it just became one of those things where i'm like yes we're actually finding some things behind this theoretical model that that Guy actually that Guy actually came up with probably 12 years ago now yeah so like i wouldn't say that there was like a specific push there for like oh yeah let's try to find these things like he has always been yeah. it's always been like part of the work of the lab mm -hmm. um but i think actually that the last work on ultra marathon that they had done uh, it was before Guy went to canada it was when he oh, was okay. still uh, in France last time. So I think the last UTMB study they did was in 2012. And there, I guess that in Calgary was more lab based studies. They did lots of stuff on more specific things, like for example, downhill running and stuff like that. So, and how does that affect fatigue? Yeah. But they, they are always by necessity more short term studies. But then like, I guess that when I came back, uh, I don't remember any kind of like pushing for that. Like, let's say that I, I was always interested. <laughs> and I think a little bit the same of what you were saying before that, like, what does really matter for this? And like that, like Ironman triathlon might be the best model that there is for ultra endurance exercise. And this is ultra endurance, but the winners, they finish in like now under eight hours. Yeah. So like, 
I mean, it is ultra endurance, but if you ask he, he would say that ultra endurance in running is after 100 kilometers, more or less, that before that is not really ultra. Like sometimes I think about ultra with, I don't know if like I would consider two types of ultra, like you go overnight and you are losing sleep as well. So all of that stuff like has never been said before. Yeah. And for me, when thinking about it theoretically, or people were asking me for advice, it was like, yeah, but what does really matter being yeah. here? Well, I've said this for a long, long time, and I think your research is starting to actually tease this out. Your your thesis work is starting to tease this out a lot. The word ultra marathon and the fact that it encompasses such a wide duration and also types of activities, everything from a flat road 50K, which would be classified as an ultra marathon to something like the Tour de Géant, right? Which is a 330K mountainous run, you know, around the Alsta Valley in, in, in Italy. The fact that we're lumping all of those into like the same kind of event discipline really does this effort that you're trying to unwind and then you're trying to unpack. It really does a disservice simply because that label is so, it's too broad, right? It's just too broad of a label. And we don't do that at different disciplines, right? We don't call a marathon an ultra 10K or an ultra road race or something like that. Like we we have very specific uh, names for these different distance disciplines and ultra is just a really, a, a really, really big one. So maybe it's in the eye of the beholder where that line of demar demarcation is. But needless to say, um, uh, like I said, I'm just really grateful that we're starting to unpack this and we're starting to unpack it in a way that that delineates the different quote unquote ultra disciplines, because I do believe that 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 the that the physiological determinants or what can determine success are different between those and that we can use some of that information to train athletes appropriately. So let's get into it, man. You can start wherever you want to start with this. This is your paper. I've got, I'll have a link to it uh, and all the relevant <laughs> information in, in, in the show notes. I, I know it's a lot, but it, I'll, I'll provide a little bit of framework for it. I think the most logical way to start is, is what we think about performance at the marathon distance. And then we can kind of like take that to how you explored how that's different from an ultra marathon perspective. So I'll turn the floor over to you to start to start unwinding that. Okay, yeah, so then I think it's a good way to start. Uh, the, in the marathon distance or really in like in endurance running uh, in general, so like it would be similar for half marathon. Uh, the speed at which we run, which determines the performance, it's determined by three main factors. And those three main factors explain a lot of the performance in normal conditions. So those three factors are the VO2 max, which I guess your audience is uh, already informed of, but like how much oxygen you can, like your body can consume, like the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can consume and use to generate energy aerobically. The fraction of that VO2 max that can be sustained. So if there are two people that have the same VO2 max, if one can sustain 90% of that VO2 max, that person will go faster than someone who can sustain only 80%. And then uh, with those two, uh, the other modifier, the other factor is the cost of running or generally known as running economy, which is similar to like the, the gas economy of a, of a car, like the less oxygen or the less energy that you use to cover a certain distance or with a certain energy, how much distance you can you can you can run so like it would be a little bit equivalent to the miles per gallon for you in the in the united states that yeah the lower it is the better 
the better speed you can do for a given uh, for a given oxygen consumption or for a given energy consumption. So those are the three main factors. They have been studied and known for a very long time. And like if you look at papers from the 70s, there's a paper, I think it's from 1977, in which like they study uh, like some very good North American runners, like Steve Prefontaine and Frank Shorter are both subjects in that study. And those are the, this is the data they are reporting. Like what is Steve Prefontaine's VO2 max? What is the running right. economy of Frank Shorter right. taking into account that his VO2 max was very low. And like in that paper already, they they are talking about what well, maybe Frank Shorter that had a much lower VO2 max than Steve Prefontaine was able to like have very close performances to him in short distances and be a very good marathon runner because his running economy was very good. He used very little energy compared to the other runners. So those are also the ones that have been used to model performance, like the first theoretical idea that the marathon could be running to in under two hours was based on taking those very good elite numbers and say, okay, yeah, if we get the person with the best VO2 market has been measured with the person and we give that person the best running economy, which in theory is humanly possible. And we put that for, and we put that person also the best fractional utilization. They should be able to sustain this speed and therefore run this time in the marathon. And that would be under two hours. So that's it in the, up to the marathon, at least it seems to be relatively straightforward. Right. So then uh, what happens is that in my research, what I wanted to look at, and I know that your podcast is more like an ultra marathon podcast, but, and I think that this is maybe like, maybe it's a, I'm wrong here, but seeing like the main difference between marathon and ultra marathon, I think it's more of a North American way of seeing it. Mm. Whereas we in Europe, sometimes we see it more as like a road or mountain running. Yeah. Yeah. So we have more short running more yeah. short trail running races like yeah. sky running yeah. and that sort of stuff. Right. Yep. So, and I have never done an ultra marathon myself, but when I have done trail running races, they have always been on the shorter side, but then like a big part of this interest was like, yeah, what happens with trail running? So starting with only trail running, not just the distance, like, is it the same? And what happens at the, in trail running? And it just happens that I would say most of the more, more popular races in, <clears throat> in ultra marathon are trail running races as well. Uh, in trail running, there are, like, there are uphills and downhills, for example. So if there are uphills and downhills, like will strength have a bigger role to play? And there be all these other things. And then there has been some research coming out in like maybe during the last 15 years uh, talking about this. There was a recent review by Diwal um, that uh, reviewed papers in short trail running races. I think the longest one in that paper was about marathon distance, but don't quote me on that. And, and yeah, like they still saw that basically what the big picture seems to be that uh, the things that matter for road running races or marathon races also matter for trail running, but how important they are is not clear. Right. <laughs> So I would say basically that like we could say it's an aerobic sport. So the aerobic part of fitness yeah. will be important, but how important Yeah. this is the question that is, I guess, starting, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say starting to be answered, but more starting to be asked Yeah. Yeah. in the research now. 
So, so what did you do with your particular paper? Cause you had a really interesting design to it that I think it, it kind of teases out a lot of the questions that you get once you start to actually do the research. So kind of go through that a little bit. Cause I want the, I want the listeners to appreciate the design that you actually deployed for this particular project. So, so this paper was part of a much bigger project. There have been, I don't remember how many now, but maybe 10 papers yeah. out of this project. Mine is the one that focuses on performance, but some other people focus on fatigue, for yeah. example. But what it was like a very, very big project that was done in the UTMB, the Ultra Tandem Trial de Mont Blanc, uh, race in 2019. So with like in collaboration with the organization and that like with the organizers and with the, the, I think it's the national ski and mountaineering school where the mountain guides and the ski guides train in France. They're in Chamonix. And we had our lab set up there. And what we were doing was comparing what happens to several things. In my case, it's going to be performance determinants and also running economy. But if for the purposes of this uh, performance determinants across three different races, I mean, three different blocks of distances. There were actually five races. So as your listeners may know, the UTMB is like one event that lasts for a week with many different races. And there are like short races, like the OCC, there are like the MCC and the OCC, which are 40 and 55 kilometers. And then there is the CCC that is 100 kilometers. And then there are the very long races, the TDS and the UTMB, which are 145 and 170 kilometers. And I don't know if we need translation to miles, but basically they go from 25 miles to 106 miles, the races. So having these differences, like, Basically, this was a good opportunity because we could get people that were going to run that were already that had already signed up to participate in these races. And like we measured all of them in the lab beforehand. And then what we did was tell them, like, go run your race to the best performance that you can do. And then in the end, we will check all of those things that we measured before, how they compare to to your performance on race day. So then what we did was we blocked the races. We took short short races, so 40 and 55. And then the 100-kilometer race was another block that we got that would be like the medium distance. And then the long races, which are, <coughs> sorry, which are the 145 and 170 kilometers. And the genius in this, if I can kind of like wind it back a little bit, because I don't mind saying this is genius. I know that's kind of hard for hard for you to say since you're a part of it. But seriously, the genius in this is is you're taking different race distances and different race durations that have roughly the same kind of environmental profile. So they're roughly at the same temperature, roughly at the same elevation, roughly at the same elevation gain, elevation loss for the races, roughly the same elevation change per mile. Like not like not that they're exactly the same, but they're all using the UTMB, you know, trail more or less to the to 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 a certain extent. And so in that way, 
you're not comparing apples and oranges, right? You're comparing apples and apples just across different distances. And so I'll give an, I'll kind of give an example to help the listeners internalize a little bit more. Sometimes when we're comparing these things, it, it's confounded by the elevation gain elevation loss. You can compare a 50K road race to 50K mountainous race and come up with kind of completely different conclusions. In this way, you've got them kind of isolated almost simply across uh, uh, distance and duration because the environment, although it's not exactly the same every single day or every single race, it's kind of close enough to where, you know, you can get a true assertion of what's going on as the distance goes up and down. Yeah, exactly. I think that that was for good. It's actually something that it has been in two other studies. Uh, one, like the first author of one of them is, uh, Alexandra Coates, I think is her name. Yeah, Alexandra Coates. And that's from also from the group of Jamie Burr. Yep. And, and I think that they actually used a loop course. So yeah. it would be even better for this. And another one by Gatter is the first author, but they only used two distances. Yep. Yep. And I think it's like that, like a very cool design. And I also think that we were very lucky because it yeah. was one week, but it's one week in the mountains. So we were very lucky to have the same weather yeah. basically for every race. It like didn't rain any of the days, the temperature at the finish line, which is when we can have a reliable measure of temperature was always the same. It was not like one day they had a storm on top of the mountains, whereas in another race they didn't. But yeah, this is true. The, the race profiles are very similar, but more or less extended, I would say for them. Okay. So we have this classic endurance model, right? The velocity that you can run is equal to the fraction of VO2 max you can sustain divided by the cost of running. And for inner, any enterprising listener out there that wants to do the algebra on that, you're more, you're more than welcome to and see how all the variables and all of the units actually cancel out and you end up getting velocity at the end of the day. Um, and, and you wanted to see, how much more dynamic that became or if it became more dynamic at the at these ultra marathon distances so kind of take us through the 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 results of which and you can do it in whatever order you kind of like want to however it's logical in your brain but how, what did you find out actually makes a difference in terms of the performance outcomes at the end of the day yeah exactly. so first of all uh one thing that was previously said in the literature and with studies in which they take the same subjects and make them run at different days, different races, is that VO2 max, for example, seems to be more important in short races, short races in this case being like a 50, like a five kilometer race than in longer races. So like uh, an 80 kilometer race, I think it was. So, so I think it was that like a 5K and a 50 you know, miler. And there were in the middle, maybe, I don't remember the exact yeah, thing, yeah. but maybe there was like a 5K, a marathon and that. And so it's like, there is this idea in the literature that VO2 max matters less when the distance gets longer. And this may be because you are actually running farther from VO2 max, you're running at a lower right. VO2. So maybe the other uh, factors are more important. And it's one thing that has been said many times that in the marathon, for example, uh, VO2 max might be less important, whereas the running economy may be more important. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to like, I wouldn't say get a definitive answer to that because we don't have that yet, but like start getting closer to, to that, like teasing out this question. Yep. So what we found was mainly that there were some things that correlated with performance more, more than others, obviously. And I think that the most interesting thing that we found was that VO2 max 
was still correlated with performance in the short distances. So to remind the listeners, that's 40 and 55 kilometers. And what and what is the, what are those? Just to just to make yeah. sure that the audience understands it as well. What's what are the times that those get, people are finishing in that you're for for your subject group but ballpark? Actually, I will look at that very quickly because I don't remember the exact numbers, and but I think we have them easy to access here. Yeah, it's totally fine. Yeah, so they were so I actually I have here the winning times. So the winners were finishing between 3.40 and 5.19, okay. like the short, yeah. like the two different races. Yeah. Four to five the, hour the, race. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So basically four to five hours for the winner. Yep. And then the medium race, the 100 kilometer race was 10 hours, 30, basically. So double and the a long little bit ones, over double. Yeah. And the long, the 145 and 170, 18 hours and 20 hours for the winners. That So this is like... This is kind of how I was lining it up in my head. It's kind of a double, right? In terms yeah, of exactly. in terms of time, every like group you go up. Yeah, and then so for our actual participants, I don't have the exact numbers, but I have them in the graph, and I think it was about uh, thirty something hours, thirty four, thirty five hours on average for the long races. I think it was about. 21 hours for the 100 kilometer races and it was maybe like four to seven or eight yeah. hours for the short races okay and another interesting thing was that we're, there was very little overlap between groups yeah like, i think that there was one person overlapping the fastest runner of the longest race run a time that was faster than the slowest person of the of the 100 kilometer race so you've got but a very clear yeah you've got a clear separation of the like the duration hmm. buckets so to speak yeah yeah okay exactly. perfect okay so continue so, on you're you're discussing the short the results of vo2 max in terms of the short uh short races yeah exactly so we found a pretty good relationship between vo2 max and performance in the short races and also in the medium races so we find that up to 100 kilometers it seems to be that uh, VO2 max works pretty well. Uh, I mean, works pretty well as a, a correlate. I don't yeah. want to say predictor because yeah. it's not exactly yeah, a predictor, yeah, yeah. but basically if you are more aerobically fit, you do better. Yeah. But we found that at least in our sample, this relationship broke in, in the longer races. This relationship was no longer true for the longer traces, longer races. And part of that might have been due to like, the way that we might have been a bit unlucky on how these runners run the race or how they perform. Because one thing that happens, for example, is that there's a clustering of performances very close to the, um, to the end of the, of the, to the limit, to the time limit, the yeah. time limit in the UTMB. I don't remember right now exactly if it's 45 hours, yeah. maybe let's yeah. say it's 45 hours. So there's a lot of people between 42 and 45 hours. Which might be people that were aiming for a faster performance, right? Right, but then in the end, like they didn't get that and said, like, okay, I can drop out because right. this is the other problem. We we have dropouts, right? So, but yeah, so let but me let then, me let me rephrase that. Motivation yeah. is confounding your results. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and motivation is that, and like it, the thing is that it can confound it like in a positive way. Like yeah. better motivated yeah. people run better, but also 
people who are very motivated can run worse because they are not so motivated to drop out when their right, pace drops. Right. I mean, this goes back so, to the very first thing. It's like, well, VO2 max decouples or becomes uncorrelated or whatever, either because it's less important and or because other things become more important and one of those other things just being the sheer motivation that you have to like suffer. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is totally true that VO2 max is like might be an important factor, but the reason why it starts being more important, it could be that you are running at an intensity that is lower than the auto max and therefore you don't really need that. Yeah. But it may be like, maybe we can get into this later, but like there's a million things that can right. happen in a 40 hour race or like a 30 hour race that will change your view, like the magnitude of the importance of the VO2 max. Whereas in a five kilometer race, you have 15 to 20 minutes, 15 to 25 minutes. I don't know. Yeah, like various. There's not much that can go wrong. Yeah, various astute observation. There's not much that yeah. can go wrong. I think that kind of like sums up the difference between uh, uh, regular distances and ultra marathon distances, right there. Yeah, there's more absolutely. stuff that can go wrong. Okay, so let's keep going through it, right? So you've got VO2 max that kind of decouples. What else? Yeah, exactly. VO2 max was the first one, and then the next one that we looked at was cost of running, running economy, and this one was interesting because like you can not really say in science that something was almost significant. It, it, something <laughs> is either significant or it's not significant. Right. So like statistically it's not correct, but like it's in this case for the short races, it was not far from being significant. Sometimes what happens is that if you happen to have more subjects, yeah. but the same type of relationship, things become significant just because like the, how the numbers are crunched by the equations that determine statistical significance or not. But even then there was absolutely no relationship between performance and running economy in any of the two longer distance categories. And this is one that has me like a little puzzled because I have also done work through my PhD on like running economy itself. So like, for example, how in this same study, like in the UTMB, how does running economy change from when measured the day before the UTMB and yeah. just after you come back. So. Yeah. We did that just after they arrived to the finish line. They came to the lab to do some testing. And then after an hour or so, I made them run for, I think it was two times four minutes. That's so brutal, by the way. It doesn't sound like much on paper, but after you've done UTMB, <laughs> like doing two by four minutes at a sub-maximal effort is the last thing you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And we had people like we had people like falling asleep on their chairs. Yeah, I'm sure they didn't want to do that. Sure. Wait a minute. Okay, um, wait, wait, wait. Before we go on, let's let the listeners appreciate this. So, when you're traditionally studying running economy, very briefly describe what that setup looks like in terms of like what the participants are actually going through. Okay, it, that's it's relatively simple. Yeah. So they arrive into the lab and then they wear a mask like they would wear for a VO2 max test that measures oxygen and CO2. And with oxygen and CO2 and knowing the speed of the treadmill, we can calculate uh, the running economy, how much energy they are burning to that. So what- But they're running at a sub max. Yeah, this, this is the yeah, yeah exactly. Part, so. So, yeah, that, that's where I'm, uh, where I, what I want to explain now. So in this case, because we wanted to do both like flat and uphill running, you would put both of them at a sub maximum speed that, should be relatively easy. Like very often uh, in the lab with, uh, with recreational athletes, but recreational athletes that finish the UTMB, we have measured this at 10 kilometers per hour. Yeah. Yeah. So about 10 million miles, yeah. Yeah. 10 minutes per mile. Yep. And like for elite marathon runners that can run a marathon 
at um, faster than 20 kilometer 20 kilometers per hour the traditional speed to measure it is 16 kilometers per hour so it's like very sub maximal uh, and it, it actually has to be some maximal because the you cannot use the numbers if your rear like the relation if you are if your intensity is too high you cannot use the numbers yeah that's a good to way calculate to explain running economy yeah, yeah that's a good way to explain okay so, so I, w- I just want the listeners to appreciate what people have to go through after running utmb to participate in your research yeah I, I, and actually i think that this was the easy part the difficult part was like <laughs> <laughs> the funny part was that they have to go and like do maximal contractions yeah, no, and I as, talk to as sprint that. on a bicycle oh and it's like it's very hard yeah. for sure oh and that like there were people falling asleep there were sometimes we had people on the treadmill and we had four people around them like i'm gonna catch him i'm gonna catch him <laughs> because we were afraid that they would fall off we didn't have any accidents luckily okay so, so what happens to running economy after you finish a race like utmb so this this is like this is funny and somewhat paradoxical yeah. because what happens is that uh, after the short races uh, running economy gets worse so basically you use more energy to do the same task that you were doing before to, to run the same distance at the same speed. Yeah. However, after the long races, there was no change. This is insane. So, it's crazy to think about. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy to think about it. And I think that there are two main possible explanations. One is that the like a race that is so long forces you to change right. uh, your running pattern yeah. to be more economical more than a race than is shorter and the other part is that maybe what happens is that it's actually intensity and not duration the main driver of the change yeah. in running economy because there's previous research done that shows a no change or even an improvement in running economy after tour de jean i know right that that, that, <laughs> that i is, know i know the study that you're referencing i'm gonna link it up in the show notes that one blew my mind when i saw that one because i'm like there's no way because i did tour de jean it's so like like visceral for me <laughs> but is that like it's, it's a problem when you're measuring running economy. So the, the thing, and one thing that I find puzzling about this is the main fact and the main idea that we're always measuring that running economy on a treadmill. So mm-hmm. this is part of the work that we're doing now, that to what extent is running economy on a treadmill really representative of what happens? It's like we, for example, we measure people running uphill at a 15% incline mm-hmm. on a treadmill when you don't have to do anything, you don't have to think, yeah. but anyone that has done a, like a trail running race, it doesn't even have to be like a 100 mile marathon or like a long trail running, uh, like training session in the mountains or even hiking. Like if you have gone backpacking and like after three days, you're tired, like you feel that you're dumber, like your feet <laughs> don't go where you want to go. Like uh, this is my feeling, like my, my legs are becoming dumb, right? Uh... Like, you treat more often. Maybe you're not lifting your feet so much. Like you don't like you say, like, I want to put my foot there, but it doesn't get exactly there. So there's a little bit more wobbliness. Maybe you make worse decisions and you don't pick the best line yeah. that you should be choosing on the trail. Yeah. And none of that can be measured on the channel. Yeah. So the thing is like, it would be very difficult to standardize, like make people run up a trail after, after an ultra marathon race. Right. Yeah. So it's not something that can be easily measured, but it's one, some work that we're doing now is about what is really the relationship between running economy measured on a treadmill compared to measured on a trail. Yeah. And I, th- I think that this is from a performance standpoint, I might be wrong on this. This is just my hunch that from a performance standpoint, figuring out 
who can carry that traditional running economy over into a trail setting and who cannot will yeah. start to tease out some of that some of that performance because certainly there's there's that component there that component of skill or in your words who becomes less dumb or whose legs become less dumb as the uh uh as as the duration of the of the race increases I want to pause for a second and just kind of like recap this because I think this is really important from a training perspective. So you look at you you measure tra- what I'll call traditional running economy, yeah. flat level ground, sub maximal speed. You find no changes in the long distance, but more importantly, you find um, no changes from before and after in, in the long distances, and some changes in short distances. But more more importantly, it's not correlated with performance at any of the distances. And you've mentioned we've we've started to see this like crop crop up before, and what what I've started to take away from a coaching perspective that I want to get your Im- input on since you know this uh, area a whole lot better than than I do, is that first off, the way that we treat running economy in a road running perspective or a 10 K and marathon perspective is like this King and queen maker almost. I mean, so much emphasis has been put on it, especially in the past, like five or eight years of the, like the, the apex of this three variable equation that we mentioned earlier to, to kind of separate elite performances. That's certainly not as true in a, in, in a, in a trail running perspective, but the pragmatic takeaway, at least from my coaching eye, is that the training interventions that we've traditionally used for to, specifically to improve road running economy, and I'm using those words very deli- deliberately, specifically to improve road running economy or traditionally measured economy, those training interventions might not necessarily be as valid or as have as much utility in a trail running uh, perspective because of that decoupling. And I'm just wondering like what your general thoughts on that could be. And, 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 and that can get as practical as like we use like plyometric training and all these other things to kind of like jerry rig running economy in a road running perspective. And it always has me think whenever I see results like this, it always has me thinking, should we actually be doing that for people on the trail if that variable isn't as important? So I want to, I want to get your perspective on that whole line of thinking. Yeah. So like one caveat that I want to say before I say any of this is that uh, it's something that happens in coaching all the time. And I have been guilty of that while coaching people sometimes that sometimes we are using an intervention thinking that we use it to improve something. It's actually working on something completely different yeah. and that's why it's good. It may not be improving running economy and it may be improving something else. Yes. Like, cause like we, we talk about plyometric training, for example, like plyometric training may not help you at all. It's possible that it doesn't help you at all to improve your running economy while either running or hiking up on, on trails. Uh, but I wonder if like doing some plyometric training, which you already do when you are running downhill, actually, <laughs> right, but like, right. but maybe like for some people who don't have access to be up and downhill, doing some plyometric training might help them like adapt their tendons or their joints to, to those impacts. However, looking at their running economy, I think that I must agree with that. Like I have been like, especially hiking with, with people, with friends sometimes that like, that are faster athletes than me, I, uh, like that are like a fast person, like a soccer player or something like that. 
And then when the terrain, like having to cross a river, because I am more used to the yeah. mountain environment, like I do like stone, 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 stone. And then I get to the other side, like very fast and very easily. And I think that how much, how big is the impact of this person, of this compared to this other person that might, might be a better sprinter, might have better plyometric training. You know, and this is just hiking, not even considering right. the running right. part. Right. But yeah, so I think that doing that, doing strides, doing like any kind of sprinting, do I think that it might be useful? Maybe yes, but for to specifically to improve running economy on trails and like the more technical the trails are, like the more uphill and downhill there is and the rockier they are, I think that there might be less carryover to to improve in running economy. I won't say to improve performance, but like right. to improve in running economy, there, there, there will be less because it will probably improve your running economy when you measure it on a treadmill. 100%. But I don't know if it will improve your running economy when you're running up that massive hill that is on like the Leadville 100. I don't remember the name of that. Yeah, pass. We're like, yeah. yeah. So when like will it improve when you're basically like putting your hands on your knees like what does that have to do with like striding fast yeah. so yeah yeah it's a, th this is it, ultimately from a practical standpoint here's how i've kind of like implemented that information is, is that i don't chase it around right i would go and i would chase around running economy if i had a two-hour marathoner for sure 100 percent. i would chase that variable around a lot like i would do a lot of training interventions trying to optimize that for, tr for a trail runner, not so much. I'd take the trail, I'd take the running economy benefit that you just get from training, right? You get running economy benefits just from doing different, you know, different speeds, different, you know, different types of workouts, different length of intervals and things like that. Just normal day-to-day -day training will improve, you know, improve running economy to a certain extent for most people, maybe not the most elite of elite. But I guess my point is, is, is because the correlation has been kind of is starting to be more consistently shown to not be very strong. It's just not a thing that I'm willing to like chase around. I'd rather chase around other stuff that matters more, right? That, that, um, that, that you, that you have pointed out. So anyway, that's more of a practical yeah. thing here, here but or there. You actually reminded me of something that I think is pretty interesting. Like I, the one thing that I have always measured has been running economy. And I think this is like a part of it is bias in the literature because what is measured is running economy. One thing that I have been like, that I would like to do one day is to, test walking economy, walking, just walking up a treadmill at 20% and just, and measuring this walking economy. So, cause we might have in ultramarathon people who are doing yeah. all of these like training interventions when maybe what you should be doing is like practice power hiking. Yeah. Uh, appeals to like, like get smooth, get this smooth hiking to actually measure your, your walking economy by doing it instead of by this like cross training, if you want intervention. Yeah. I'll, uh, so I'll point the listeners to, I don't know if you listen to this podcast or not, but a podcast that I did with Jackson Brill, who's master's thesis up at the university of Colorado and Roger Crom's old lab, um, uh, did, did a lot, did a lot of this work. So, uh, rather yeah. than, rather than rehashing all that, that entire podcast, I'll, I'll direct the listeners there. Cause it is quite interesting. And we do see, I would say inter we, we do see individual differences in terms of how their flat level economy compares to their uphill running yeah. or walking uh, economy. Although that research is very, 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 very early stage and, you know, yeah. to a lot of extent non-existent. Okay. So we've got the one variable VO2 max, second variable running economy. What's next? So then like 
we actually tried like putting a bunch of uh, variables in there and like the ones that you basically like don't even see in the paper is that so like i think that the sentence that i use in the paper is something similar to like vo2 max and the velocity at vo2 max which would be like the speed at the end of the test before the person stops and then the um, and then i think i use like something like other aerobic fitness variables such as like the speed at or your the vo2 at your thresholds like the first mm -hmm. and second threshold they are also correlate with performance but like the magnitude of the correlation is smaller than vo2 max it's also true that they have more there's more error in the measurement mm -hmm. of those things so it may be part of the reason why but then other things such as for example like the the percentage of at which the thresholds the percentage of vo2 max at which thresholds occur like it's had no relationship at all uh, so like the fastest person was not the one that would have the threshold at 90 percent compared mm. to the one at 80 percent of vo2 max well it's again very so very are, unlike marathon running right yeah but, but like what happens there is that it's always the multiplication of what your vo2 max is times what fraction of that you can sustain right yeah. So what we've found, is, at least in our sample, the magnitude of VO2 max seems to overpower that, right? right? Because and I think that it might be that uh, in our sample of non-elite runners, uh, we find more variability that you can have someone that is on the high side of VO2 max and being on the low side of, um, of like percentage of threshold. Whereas if you take a group of like elite marathon runners yeah. and compare them to a group of non-elite marathon runners, maybe both of the, the elite will have both higher VO2 max yeah. and higher percentage of VO2 max at threshold. Your circle. Like maybe in elite populations, exactly. They go more together. But then like other things that we looked at were body composition in which we found the same. So like body fat percentage, basically having less body fat. This is, I think, a message in which that you will put all the disclaimers on that sure. and like body composition. It's not about chasing a uh, low body fat percentage, but uh, it seemed to be uh, to show a good correlation with performance. At the same time, what happened was that there was a very good correlation between body fat percentage and VO2 max. Right. So the correlation between body fat percentage and VO2 max was even like up in the same ballpark as the correlation between body fat percentage and performance. Right. And this is because when we measure VO2 max in running, at least we divide it by body weight because we have to carry it. So it seems that the benefit would come from there. Yeah. So it's not about chasing a low weight. It's like same thing that the cyclists say, like maybe the power to weight ratio. Right. Right. So then the other variable that we looked at was lipid metabolism and a caveat for this as well, is that we did not do a proper fat max test, which like maybe your listeners, I don't know if you have had someone on the podcast talking about this, but like doing a pro pro proper uh, fat max test is about taking like taking a person to like different long stages. Yeah. Uh, like let's say you run at like six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 miles per hour for four or five minutes, yeah. maybe. And then you measure how much of the energy that they are using is coming from from fats and how much is coming from from carbohydrates. The the, the salient point there is a fat max test will typically be longer and have longer stages associated with it because you're trying to specifically see what the maximum amount 
of fat that you're that you're burning per minute. And this is I'm going to go off on a tangent here, so you're going to have to put up with this. This is the issue that I've always had with the fat metabolism magicians out there that try to claim that somehow they're optimizing their fat metabolism through this, that, or the other. A lot of the times what they're doing is they're comparing their results to results from tests that weren't intended to optimize or maximum or measure maximum fat oxidation. And it's like comparing apples and oranges because you can always manipulate the test to get a different type of substrate mix, depending upon the length of the individual stages, where you start the stages at is the athlete fasted or fed beforehand. There's like all these other variables. And I've always seen this stuff like put out by particularly a lot of the people that promote maximum fat oxidation or optimized fat oxidation as some sort of magical intervention but what they're do that their results are superior or whatever. And in many cases, not in all, but in many cases, they're comparing apples and oranges simply because the tests are different. So yeah, anyway, no. that's my, that's my, <laughs> that's my spiel on that. So I'm glad that you mentioned that caveat that you didn't do it in a, a quote unquote, I don't know, traditional or whatever, whatever way for the, for the fat oxidation side of yeah. things. So in a fat oxidation now, maximal fat oxidation test like that, you have to be much more strict because you yep. want everyone coming in in the same metabolic condition. Yep. Yep. Uh, so like the same amount of hours fasted. Yep. And like we had to, we that's were not to able do. to do that. Yeah, that's hard to do. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, we had like, I don't know, like 75 people to test in like basically a month before the race. And they had to come into the lab and do the testing and familiarize with the uh, yeah. neuromuscular stuff. There, there was a lot of stuff that they yeah. had to do. So it was just like, yeah, we, we are not able to do this. And we chose the test that we could. But one thing that we did was during the running economy test, like five minutes running at 10 kilometers per hour. Then like at the end of that, we said like, okay, when you run at this speed, what is your fat metabolism? Yeah, okay. So like, there you go. How Perfect. much of that, of that is coming? So it's not a fat max test. Like yep. I, it is. We cannot compare it to a fat max test, what yeah, you were saying before, yeah, yeah. right? So, but like, it gives us an idea. Like, this was the idea. Like, can we get a glimpse from the data that we have? Can we get a glimpse about like how these different people uh, use or metabolize fat? And in this case, we found that interestingly, only in the short race races, uh, people that had greater fat metabolism had better performance. So like there was a negative correlation. So with more fat metabolism leading to better performance. And interestingly that, which was also like a bit puzzling for us. Like, why is this that it's in the short races when in theory, the longer the races, let's bear in mind, these short races were like six hour races yeah, yeah. For, for most of the people, right? But which is definitely into the fat metabolism side of, yeah. the, um, of the exercise spectrum. But it was more important in those races than on in the like, let's say, ten-hour races or twenty-hour races for the winners, which were actually like yeah. twenty-hour races or thirty-six-hour races for the for our participants. But you guys found that as surprising, right? I mean, yeah. See, I look at that as not all that surprising, and he and and I think I, you, there's some dialogue in your uh, discussion section that I think alludes to this as well. Is that the longer distances, you're so far underneath your maximum energy production threshold, right, or ma the maximum amount of energy that you can produce, that that little bit of extra fat metabolism is kind of irrelevant to the actual performance, 
right? It doesn't actually boost it because you're, it's kind of like the VO2 max proposition, right? You're running at yeah. such a, such a smaller percentage of your max or of your true VO2 max that bumping your VO2 max up might not have that big of a difference. I kind of view it as the same thing here, especially at the longer distances. Yeah, I think that this is probably the case. Like, yeah. basically, the thing is that I think part of it may be because of, like, traditional exercise science has not gone much beyond yeah. the two hours of the marathon. We say, like, okay, after this, the problem you have is glycogen like depletion. Yeah, right. Like you're going to run out of glycogen, and then you'll have to slow down. Yep. What might be happening, and this is, like, the research of D has been showing, like, in longer races, central fatigue yep. is more important. Yep. So fatigue that is happening basically directly in the nervous system. And it may not be uh, glycogen depletion. So what happens is that maybe you're not depleting uh, glycogen that much. And also the lower intensity allows you to eat more compared to the exactly. shorter races. Exactly. So I think that both of, both of those things may contribute to it being less important for these sort of distances. Yeah. And here, once again, we'll kind of like drive it home from a practical perspective, since I'm like the practitioner in the, in, in the room here, and you can, you can give me your thoughts on this one is at the longer distances, I'm not as willing to go and try to manipulate things to get enhanced fat metabolism. Because once again, it's not all that relevant because you're so far below your ceiling. Maybe that's relevant at like, I don't know, like a five or six hour duration. Maybe there's some sort of like sweet spot there. But certainly at the longer distances, a training takes care of most of how much max, how much fat you can metabolize per minute, whatever maximum rate that you can kind of get to. And anything else beyond that is, you know, very, it, it is, is kind of trivial. So th that's what I've kind of like, when I see things like that, that's what I kind of take away from these things. It's once again, what, what things do I chase and what things do I don't chase, right? That's kind of the theme of research like this and the, the metabolism thing, especially at the longer distances is something that I'm just not chasing anymore. I'd rather chase fitness gains. Yeah. Um, I think this might well be very true that, and also that, that with the long duration training that everyone who is training for this is doing, or maybe we could say should yeah. be doing, but like it will take care of most of that. And then maybe the most important thing is that like, don't screw up. Don't do stuff that is like, <laughs> obviously like don't have a diet of Coca-Cola every day sort of thing. Right. Yeah. That maybe yeah. will uptick your metabolism in like the wrong side. Yeah. But as long as you're having like a normal, uh, like training and duration schedule for this, like you can probably be that, like you will be using a lot of fat during your low intensity training yeah. for sure. Okay. So what else remarkable from this or as an <laughs> extension of this, and we'll get into what the future might look like in a second. Did you like take from doing all this research? Hmm. I would say that, I mean, to me, it was part of it was just like confirmation. I, I really liked seeing that up to 20 kilometers, I mean, 20 hours for the, for like 10 hours for the winner and 20 hours for many of our athletes in this 100 kilometer race, like VO2 max still matters. For, and like, and I, by VO2 max still matters. I think that VO2 max is the thing that we're measuring here. I have a bit of a, I don't know, like, I'm not a super big fan of VO2 max as a unit sometimes because like VO2 max is using, like, it takes into account, like the size of your heart and like the oxygen transport, you know? So it's like, it integrates everything, but at the same time, like, are we just saying that it's VO2 max when it might be one of the subcomponents of yeah. VO2 max? Maybe uh. it's not, maybe it's just the integration of all of them. But because like, is this, uh, it's one thing that I have thought a lot about 
like how should we, for example, after these results, like should we train VO2 max in the same way for a 5K runner compared to a to an ultra marathon runner? That's an interesting because if you are using because there is there are these like sprint interval training studies yes. that do like five mm -hmm. times or like six times 30 second sprints and show an improvement in VO2 max. Like what? Well, maybe you do that with an ultra marathon runner and you improve VO2 max, but do we know what the mechanism is that is improving this VO2 max? And is this the mechanism that will also improve the VO2 max or like improve VO2 max in a useful way for the ultramarathon runner? And we just don't know that. So I think that like, I guess that you have to train VO2 max, but I don't know if we can just train VO2 max by doing like all out three minute intervals or whatever it is. Like if this is just the, exactly in which we should be doing this uh so i'm gonna put you on the spot you got to put up with it what's your hunch because you're right you can train different components of vo2 max and they've you know the you've you've you're familiar with the fundamental physiology as well as the research behind this there are certain steps of the process that limit vo2 max that we've kind of readily identified especially with especially with endurance athletes but what's your hunch? Like, what's your hunch in terms of what's more important? What component is more important in an ultramarathon setting? Uh, uh, you are definitely putting me on the spot because <laughs> I do not have an answer to that. And like, it's something that I have brought up in like yeah. class teaching the master students sometimes. I was yeah, like, well, yeah. and what is it? And like, I have not been able to come up with an answer because like, I still wonder what is limiting. I, I don't think that the important thing is VO2 max. I think what matters is aerobic fitness. Some, yeah, some piece of it. It yeah. just happens that we measure aerobic fitness, which is like a nebulous concept here, as VO2 max. Yeah. But I, and the people that have very good aerobic fitness have very high VO2 max, and therefore they show up as high VO2 max for high performance. And that's why we find this relationship. But like taking into account that everything is so sub-maximal, yeah. It must be a combination of like all the things, but I don't think that it's necessarily like having a bigger heart because like, well, you have a bigger heart. So your maximum cardiac output is whatever, but like, yeah, but you're operating at a lower cardiac output than, than that during an ultra marathon race. So like, do you really need that maximum? How part of, I think Jamie Burr has done some work on like how your cardiac output decreases in a, after, yeah on your cardiac function decreases. So maybe if you have a bigger heart, you have, you can lose more heart uh, pumping ability, yeah. let's say, but still have it, have a higher one. For, so, for, the, for the listeners out there, before yeah. we get like too far in the weeds and lose people, let me try to, I'm going to try to colloquialize yeah. this a little Absolutely. bit. So when we talk about what limits VO2 max, there's kind of like three stages of it. The first stage is, is the, what I'll call the capacity stage which is how big your heart is, how much how much blood volume can it fill up with before it disperses it throughout your body. Second stage is the transport stage. So taking that oxygen from, uh, fr from the environment and into your working muscles. And the last stage is how your oxygen or how your muscles can essentially utilize that, that oxygen. And for years, physiologists have tried to like peel apart what's the most important thing in it. And here's where it actually shows up the most. This is why cyclists use EPO doping. 
is because very specifically it enhances the transport piece of that. They have more red blood cells to transport the oxygen from the lungs into the muscles. They're not using like mitochondrial doping, right? Which would be the, which would be the final end stage utilization piece of it. And so they, knowing this, like pat, this very crude pathway that I just, that I just tried to describe, there's some exercise physiologist, uh, teacher <laughs> professor out there that is now cringing at this, at this, uh, description of, and maybe you are yourself, cause it's been a long time oh, since I've described it to somebody. But anyway, the, the, my point of my point with this is, is these stages of how VO2 max actually materialize. It's been debated for a long time, what limits what in what type of, in kind of what type of environment. And the traditional way that we've looked at this from, from a more endurance sport, you know, marathon 10K and things like that is that the delivery piece of it is the limiting factor. And we see that unfold in real time as how people manipulate the system in order to in order to improve performance what you're saying is is that might not be true where there might be something else that is playing a bigger part as the duration goes up maybe it's the heart size maybe it's something at the mitochondrial side yeah, of things um, maybe it's something different i need something and it's totally like an, i don't know what it is because like yeah, for example one thing that happens i also think that one reason why cyclists or Endurance athletes use blood doping. You can, you can that, throw cyclists under the bus. They're they're the big culprits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that it's relatively easy to do. Like yeah. it's very hard to increase the size of the heart. And yeah. like there are some right. studies in which, if I'm not wrong, they cut the heart of a poor dog, and then like they they cut the membrane around the heart, and then the heart can expand more, yeah. and then it increases the VO2 max of the dog. Yeah. But you cannot do that to an athlete. But yeah. like putting more blood into the veins, it's uh, readily doable. So. Yeah. So I think that that may also be part of the reason. However, like for all of these things, like it's the same for all of them, like, like mitochondrial capacity and like the utilization seems not to limit VO2 max because mitochondria are overbuilt. And then, so then we have the other two, but then it's like at an, during an ultra marathon, it's not your heart rate max that is limiting you because like you can always put more heart rate. Right. So it's not your, it's not cool. like, is it your oxygen transport? It's like, well, if you can run a 5k, you can transport more oxygen than the oxygen that <laughs> you're right. transporting right now. So why don't That's you right. just bring it up? Yeah. Right. So this is why I think it's like a very, very interesting question uh, on like what is going to be limiting this. And that I think that part of the answer might be how those things deteriorate over time. Yeah. Like in the same vein that we we're saying before that running economy gets worse. So how do these things get worse? Because maybe it's not as much who has like the higher, like the best oxygen transport at the beginning, but who deteriorates the least. How, yeah, yeah. Exactly, who deteriorates the least. Yeah. It's almost like a hundred meter dash, right? It's not who gets to the peak velocity. It's who deteriorates the least. So yeah. super interesting. I know that's a little bit of a more, more of a nuanced debate. So let's take it to the future. Like we talked, we've already talked a little bit about that. We want to explore some of these areas of what, what things deteriorate least and how they impact performance. What like personally, since you're obviously super curious in this area, what, what do you want to see or what do you want to actually do next? Well, I think that like what I said before about like some things that are very specific to, especially not as much ultra running, but trail running. So like things that are very related to the environment in, and many of these things I am not actually qualified to do because there should be people who work on like skill acquisition and it's a funny thing because it seems like there are scientists that study skill acquisition yeah. 
uh, I'm not in that field, but are there scientists that study skill loss, skill deterioration, right? Because it will be like the inverse, but yep. what happens after an acute intervention, right? So that part, like how does the technique and also like the tactical decision-making basically, it's like, it's like all of these unknowns, like the reason mm -hmm. why the physiology is less predictive in longer distances is mainly that if, according to me, it's that there are more things that can go wrong. So like, yeah, like you have much more time to get a blister, yeah. right? And like a blister can be, a, I decrease my pace by 50%. Yeah. So that's it. Like you have less time to get a blister or, and even if you have a blister, if you get a blister in like a five kilometer race, you may put up with it until the end. Yeah. Right. So Elliot Kipchoge, uh, who's like insoles came out of what marathon was it? Yeah, it was exactly. the Berlin marathon, marathon several years yeah. ago. That was hilarious. It was the Olympic games in Those 2016. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, right. But yeah, exactly. So like if it's a relatively short time, maybe you can put up with that, but like same thing, like if your insoles move during a 170 kilometer race, you're going to stop and like, fix it. <laughs> maybe, yeah, exactly. Like, first of all, you're going to stop and fix them. That's one thing. Like how much people stop. It's something that, yeah zero yeah. is i like is it a limitation towards study but there are people that take naps yeah so like what is the optimal napping <laughs> like how much time do you lose for how much time you gain after so all of this is not really physiology but i find it super interesting and and super cool and a lot of this is this like to what extent does the things that we measure in the lab to what extent do they relate to the things that we measure yeah. uh, that well that are actually happening on the field so one thing that i can measure vo2 max in the lab here in saint etienne at about 500 meters above sea level that would be about mm. 1400 feet yeah. above sea level but then we send them to run in chamonix and like in the utmb i think they go up to 2800 meters so almost 10,000 feet so when like how much vo2 max do you lose when you go to altitude yeah. Right. And this is like another thing that will have an impact. So like there's a much bigger accumulation of impact when we're, when we're just talking about the physiology. So all of these are things that will like, I guess, take a lot of time to be teased out because usually, for example, in this case, the altitude research has been done. Like we're going to have the Olympic games in Mexico. So yeah, we should right. learn about altitude, but everything happens at the same elevation. Yeah. But what happens when you're going from yeah, yeah. almost sea level to, I don't know, 3000 meters of elevation. Here's a good case study for you to peel apart on that is the one with, so I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado. It's the one with Matt Carpenter who has the highest VO2 max recorded at the training center right around the corner from me. And, um, I just happen to know a lot about his physiology because the person who did those tests was one of my mentors for a long, a long, a long, long, long period of time. And, um, they, when they tested his VO2 max at 92, which then got verified at another, uh, at another testing site over in Italy, uh, they kind of found the same things where his VO2 max was so high, but his running economy was terrible, which really, which really explained why he was so good at sky running races and kind of not very good at marathon races. I think his PR was like 219 or 216 or something like that. But yet he could, you know, absolutely destroy people on the mountains and especially up and down Pikes Peak and has the Leadville record, which is kind of one of the most outstanding uh, trail tra running records that that's still around. And the physiologist over there would always kind of debate that 
that ru- that way that we traditionally measure running economy, as we were talking about earlier, is just not that important once the surface changes. And for whatever reason, his skill acquisition, to use your you know your phrasing yeah. that you just went through on the trails, was just so superior as compared to you know his his competitors that that traditional running economy was just not very kind of, kind of very meaningful so there there's some there, i mean there's some precedent behind a lot of these things that you're actually mentioning although it hasn't been quite fully teased out in the uh in the literature one thing that you just made me think of like you can get to the top of pikes peak by car right yeah oh yeah they've done a lot of research and, on the top of there yeah like was he ever tested like did he ever get his view to max tested on the I top don't because know. like i mean it was seven, like, like 60... have people in, they're done it I, I think that there are, there's research being done there but i would be interested in the case study yeah uh, alping so former another former guest rob mazio who's done a lot of research on the top of pike's peak there's an actually military kind of installation yeah. there where they do a lot of research i'll, I'll ping him i don't th- I, I don't think he was one of the subjects there but once again the theory was is his VO2 max didn't deteriorate as much going up to altitude as other people. That was like the working kind of deal there because yeah, you got to understand these people. This was, you know, in the 90s and, you know, early, early, well, all the 90s, I guess. So we didn't have as much to go off of. But their theories were is kind of this two part thing where he has a super high VO two max, but a really terrible running economy. The running economy didn't really translate into the trails as much. And then for whatever reason, his his because his performance did not deteriorate at VO two max for whatever reason, he has some physiological physiological trait where it doesn't deteriorate as much as some of his competitors when he gets up to 10, 14,000 feet and things like that. And it actually kind of plays out in the races. Like when you look at the splits over the years where his separation would be is kind of above 10,000 feet yeah. above tree line. So anyway, interesting stuff to kind of, to, to kind of bat around. If I can dig up that information, man, I'll send it over yeah. to you and you can go yeah. hog wild with it. <laughs> Please do. Oh. So yeah, I like, I think then the, the, so going back to our previous discussion, the other thing that I would like to see much more of is like the other specific factor of ultramarathon or like the other specific, like, I don't know, thing of ultramarathon, which is like the duration. So it's all of this stuff about like the deterioration of all the variables that we have talked about, which is something that more research has been coming out on this. Like there's like, there's this idea of durability that has been like, there have been publications about it recently. So is this like, how much does durability influence this? How does this, how can we improve this durability? And maybe the answer to that will just be like, you do long runs. And it's like, well, what we were doing all the time, but I don't know, will we learn anything new about it or will we, or maybe we'll just point people in the direction of saying like, oh, this type of training is actually more important. Maybe it's worth it for you to like do a seven hour run or whatever it is, or like an all day hike run session is more important than what we thought before. Yeah. It, it, it's a, it's, it is kind of a mystery. And I'm, once again, I'll fully admit that from a training intervention standpoint, we still guess more than we know, right? You never really know, but like the, there is a still very much an educated guessing process and much more so than you see in the track and field distances where every, all the training is fairly, you know, relatively standard, I guess, compared to what we see up here the marathon distance and things like that. And even in Ironman triathlon, where it's really not all that 
different from you know person to person or from or from group to group or whatever they'll like to argue about the nuance but kind of fundamentally <laughs> once you back the lens out it's 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 very very similar i keep coming whenever i have conversations with people like yourself that tease us apart i keep coming down to this like two-pronged thesis of how to of how to internalize ultra marathon training it's get as fit as possible and your VO2 max data kind of corroborates that, right? Just get us, do whatever, do whatever training interventions you think get you as fit as possible. You like a lot of volume, do a lot of volume. You want to do some intervals, let's do some intervals and let's make them like logical. And then find your limiting factors and work on those. If your limiting factors is you're going to fall asleep, let's figure out an intervention to like, <laughs> like make you not fall asleep. If your limiting factor is your quads are going to get shot, right? To use like a colloquial term uh, for fatigue, right? Then let's work on that. If your limiting factors is you're going to puke for 10 hours, let's go and work on that. Because these other things that we can measure, the correlations are just so spurious that it doesn't make sense to chase one down or the other. It makes sense to chase down the thing that is going to affect you the most. That's kind of the way that I've like looked at like training when I'm, when I'm critically evaluating all of the things that I can do is I can't come up with a really compelling reason to do anything than just improve fitness and figure out what the biggest limiting factors are and try to cover those up as much as possible. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like the way in which I have been thinking about my VO2 max result, yeah. especially in the long, in the very long races. So like whenever you see the graphs, which we're not able to see right now, but whenever you see the graphs, you always see like a sort of line between like performance and VO2 max in trail running races. That is like, yes. it looks like you, unless you have this VO2 max, like you have to be on this side of the line. Yeah. Because if you are, you it's impossible for someone with like a VO2 max of 40 yeah. to run a 24 hour UTMB, yeah. yep. right? Like you need a VO2 max of 60, so get as fit as possible, but then like make sure that you don't have any of the problems that make someone with a VO2 max of let's say 60 that would maybe finish in like 32 hours to finish in 39 hours yeah. because they had this problem. So yeah. I think that it makes a lot of sense. What? The club, the club, right. Is like, we always mention like, who's in the, who's in the quote unquote club for the elite side of things. It's just a bigger sphere in ultra marathon when we're look when we're looking at their physiology and the reason that it's yeah. a bigger sphere, a bigger sphere is that there are more variables at play. Once again, going originally back to what we were talking about, what Guy theorized, you know, 10 or 14 yeah. years ago and what the research is now starting to cooperate is that all these factors just start to play a bigger, a, a bigger role because oxygen is not the limiting factor or is not as big of a limiting factor. Let's add all the caveats in there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, man, we're going to let you go. I'm going to give you the last word. First off, how can people find more about found out, find out more about you and the research that you do and perhaps even get involved. I'm going to tap into our audience here for subjects and anything that you're doing. Well, so if they want to get involved, actually, we have recently uh, started a study that is like online sort of like crowdsourced study. Yeah. Like it's linked to an app. So like, I'm sure that you could like link it on the show notes or something. I will. I know what and you're then, talking about because I sent that yeah. out via my socials a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So and then there is, so that study, which aims to tease out like, yeah, how do people actually train? Yeah, I love and that like, one, by the way. <laughs> can we find like good and for that one is like the more people the better. So yeah. like that would be great to get involved. And then like you can find me on ResearchGate, like my name and two last names. 
you can find me on Twitter and me check my Twitter handle actually. Because, like, <laughs> I love how all the physiologists are on Twitter, but they don't know what their handles are. It's so hilarious. I, like, I, I mean, I, I use it, I get on it every day, but I guess we don't talk to ourselves that much. <laughs> I don't know. I'll put uh, yeah, it's actually, it. it's simple. It's Frederick's past. So Frederick, my name, S, this is first initial of my first last name and past, P-A-S-T. The first first letter of my other of my last last name, and hopefully by the time this up, like there will be a frederiksabater.com website, perfect as well, in which I will put some of my like research and stuff like that. Perfect. I'll have links to that in the show notes. Anybody can go check it out. Do check it out because because it is a wealth of information. I appreciate what you and what your team there does. It helps me out professionally as a coach, but more importantly, you're starting to solve some of the riddles that um uh, that exist in the ultra marathon world and we should all be great grateful for that because better performances more prepared athletes just means safer races and more exciting races and it's it's finally cool to see a lot of this research very in its very early stages start to emerge and i hope 20 years from now um we can kind of like come back on conversations like this and say yeah you know like now we've we've got it evolved and now we've figured out this this and this matters more that's the way the evolution of everything goes so anyway i'm very appreciative for you and your work thank you all right folks there you have it there you go. Much thanks to Frederick for coming on the podcast today. Hope to bring him back because it sounds like they're doing some exciting stuff coming out of his lab, having to do not only with ultra marathon, but with a lot of fatigue, which is an incredibly fascinating area in sports performance. Appreciate the heck out of what he is doing as well as his colleagues are doing, because as I mentioned from the onset, this is a question that I think really gets to the roots of how we can effectively train ultramarathon runners for performance. But there is a lot of work to go because I have always maintained and a lot of coaches will be with me on this. Performance is always a multifactorial endeavor. You can never rely on one single thing to hinge your performance on, and inevitably it's gonna be this big soup of a lot of different variables when we look at when we look at this from an ultra marathon perspective. Appreciate the heck out of all you listeners out there. If you like this podcast, feel free to share it with your friends and your training partners. It always means a lot to me when I meet you guys out in the field. The summer racing season is upon us now. And if you've gained valuable insight from this podcast, please share it with your friends and as well as your training partners so that they can get that same information as well. That's it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. <laughs>